Foundations Investment Advisors has an exclusive offer for American Hero Show listeners, or as Travis says, people of listening, head to AmericanHeroShow.com slash challenge to learn more about the new 6040 challenge and schedule your intro call. The advisors at Foundations will help you beat your current retirement plan, and if they can't, they'll send you $100. Check out AmericanHeroShow.com slash challenge to learn more and to schedule your call today. The American Hero Show, featuring Travis Mills. From generals to grandparents, superheroes to superintendents, heroes come in all shapes and sizes. This is the American Hero Show. All right. Well, we're back once again, and I have uh, I've been fired up for our interviews. I really have. I have too. Yeah, you know, it's been a good but season. Yeah. when yeah. people tell me I have a face for radio, um, <laughs> it hurts my feelings. Well, it's your haircut. But this gentleman we have actually has a face for TV, and the world knows it, Tim. Yeah, yeah. he's uh, he's he's not only got the face for TV, he's got the voice. Too? Well, you know, he went to Colgate College, and that's where he gets his great smile from. Is that what I'm it is? Sure. Yeah. That's what I use, Colgate Total. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> White now. You know what I mean? But, ladies and gentlemen, well, please welcome to the show our guest today, Mr. Bob Woodruff. Bob, how, how are we doing today, sir? I'm good, man. It's like blue sky out here in New York now after raining and depression for a couple of days. It's freaking and I'm going to see my little twin girls tonight for dinner. So I'm happy. Oh, that's oh, awesome. Can't beat that. Well, mm-hmm. thank you so much for being a part of this uh, this podcast here, the American Hero Show. And obviously you fit that bill for being an American hero and and uh, everything you've done in your career so far as to date in your very young career. But we just um I'm excited. Tim and I are just excited to be able to pick your brain and see what's going on and and uh, talk about kind of all the things. So you're in New York now. Where did you grow up? Just so we get some backstory. I grew up sub- suburbia outside Detroit. And then uh, I left there right after I got out of college and moved to New York. And then I went back to Michigan for uh, to go to law school. Yeah. became a lawyer. And then I, then I left again and moved to like 10 different cities once I married my wife and had... Uh, had kids that my son, when he was 11, lived in eight eight cities. Oh, wow. In two countries. So, I mean, I just kept moving, like running from something. Maybe there's maybe some kind of legal violations or something. I don't know. But I, I kept running. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. I understand that completely. So, um, am yeah. I hearing a Go Blue fan? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, baby. Yeah, the Wolverines. Yeah, you probably don't know this. I'm actually from Rankin-Muth, Michigan area. So, right oh, up north, wow. a little town called Vassar. And... I am a Go Blue fan. So anytime I'm near anybody from Ohio, I make sure to yell OH, have them yell IO, and then I say sucks. And then I ask them, why can't they spell it by themselves? It's pretty embarrassing. It's only four letters, but they're from Ohio. So, I, you know, it is what it is. But more importantly, um, so you joined ABC News in 1996. I mean, how, how, how was that experience? Like, was that just like the most amazing thing ever to, to have your own show and be America's voice? I don't know if I had, I don't think I had America. Let's, let's put it that way, but it was, <laughs> I don't know. I got, I got this strange addiction to just doing something new every day. And I, I, because I, when I, I was a lawyer before, I, I practiced for four years mm-hmm. and it was kind of using the same, doing the same paperwork over and over again, uh, which didn't really fit with what I really loved the most. So I became into journalism because long story too about, having lived in China when a the massacre happened there in 1989. Wow. So I came out, I just got addicted to this idea of doing stuff differently every, every single day, a new topic. 
so yeah, so when I when I finally got into it, which was really in in 1996, I joined ABC, and I was covering uh, Department of Justice there in DC, partly because they took advantage of me having been a lawyer, <laughs> and then but I, all I really wanted to do is go overseas, and maybe I just like like I said, maybe I just run from everything. Yeah. So I wanted to go yet again far away. So then I got a chance to go over to um, to London, report out of Europe and Yugoslavia and all of those days, and then Iraq. Afghanistan happened. So what was like uh, one of the coolest places that you got to you got to cover a story from either live there for a little bit or just even just maybe a couple of days you were there? You know, I, you know, there's a, usually when there's something stunning just to look at is one of those stories. You can't believe you get to be there. But there was a huge volcano that hit uh, southern Italy in the town of Etna or the mountain that was the volcano Etna. Uh, what is that like 20 years ago now? I remember going down there. We were able to go. Well, all the other tourists and things were kept far away from it, miles. We were able to actually climb the volcano itself when it was bursting. And we're standing, you know, 30 yards away from this volcano bursting. And uh, we knew it was going in a different direction. I just can't believe I get a chance to see and, and look at this. Yeah, that was really an amazing thing to go to. You know, then we did stories. We'd go out on, on, on race sailboats. and. That kind of stuff. These are the peaceful, happy ones. Although, what, a volcano exploding was, was happy? I guess it was because there wasn't anybody killing. Right. But then there was the times where the most, most, the highest, I'm sure you know more than this, you guys, that, what's the word? Uh, when your blood is flowing, when you're going into oh, adrenaline. adrenaline and. Yeah, yeah, yeah adrenaline. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what you feel when you go to. So that's the other thing I really loved doing. It was places that were, you know, war zones too and had that kind of addiction. So I wanted to go far and I wanted to go something where there's a team of people there. It's it's impressive. I don't know how anybody goes to a war zone with without a rifle, right? Like I had grenades, I had rifle, I had I mean I you know, I had a rifle, I had yeah. I had a bunch of ammunition, like I was I was not going outside of, you know, the gate without without that. So the fact that you kept going and doing stuff like that, it's just I mean what's that that's gotta be a crazy feeling. Well, you know, that was it's interesting you say that because you know, once upon a time, there was this 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 thought that the ones that are targeted by by this were were you guys, the military, and that the journalists were there, and people were wearing like they wear these clothes that would say "press" on it. You know, and so the assumption is the enemies don't really target you because you're just there to cover it. You're not the ones shooting back. But that, of course, changed a hundred percent when it came to terrorist wars. You know, you know those guys no longer gave a shit who it was that they're going to shoot at, you know, the insurgents, mm-hmm. you know, and I remember we, when we went in, in Iraq after the invasion, which I went in embedded with the uh, first time I've ever been embedded, I went in with the Marines in from Kuwait and I was, that was, so that was in 2003 by the March of 2004, after wandering the country, really, after we were wandering the country in 2004, in March, when they started to blow up these churches and uh, towns, and that's when we couldn't really travel, assuming that we're safe, that they were going to target everybody at any time. So that's when we started embedding. Bob, when you, I, I, I'm about halfway through uh, your book that you wrote with, with your wife, and uh, she mentions in the book how, you know, right before you got hit, that she asked you, are you safe? And she said it kind of in passing. Did you, did you always feel safe or was there a time when you were like, God, I'm, you know, 
this is not a good situation. I think it, I think so. I mean, I think there's something natural in the in the in the brain that if you're going to a place like that, you wouldn't go unless you thought that there's a certain thoughts of uh, uh, safety that you're not going to die. I mean, I remember I thought about what if I got like my finger blown off or something. I didn't really think about getting killed. Uh, I think it's because it makes no sense. If you think there's a good chance you're going to be killed, why would you go there? Right. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I think you guys are a little different that you, once you're in and you don't know where you're going, or maybe even you join the military before the war even starts, then you're ordered to go to them. You know, we have the journalists, we have the, we have the decision to make that we want to go or not. We don't have to go. Uh, and I just, but I, because I didn't really feel like I was going to get killed or, or really badly, badly wounded. I didn't think that was really going to happen. It's it's stupid or whatever you want to call it, um, but it's like a natural thing of the body to not to think about that if you're really, in fact, going to go. Did you feel a calling to go there during that time to maybe uh, do your duty to report back to the people in a maybe a truthful way? I think so. I think it's true. We all have a mix of it. You know, we have uh, one. We really think this would be enticing. It'll be pretty amazing, pretty satisfying, and. Uh, and then others are, you know, this is one I think we got to go and, and tell the story. Because I think, you know, we had previous wars. A lot of it was, you know, 1991 in Iraq. There was no military, no uh, media was really able to go. So it's hard to figure out what's true and what's not true. But I think the ones that are reporting just out of the White House or something, try to talk about what's happening in the war zones. I just feel it's uh, it's usually inaccurate with a different attitude towards it. I think if you're, if you hate the media, it doesn't matter what you, what you, you're not going to say anything better if you're there in the war zones about what the media does. And if you're anti-war, anti-military, and you're sitting there somewhere in some town in America, I don't think you'll ever have this, this real wake up that, oh my God, holy shit, these are like really cool people, right. you know? It's not yeah. like this image of what it, what it gets. You know, I, rem- I remember there was uh, the first time I embedded when I went in with the Marines in the into Iraq in 2003. I remember in the beginning, it was for sure this like distrust, I guess, both ways. Um, and a lot of it, we still had a really bad reputation with the military, uh, us reporters. And I think, you know, after a couple of months and sitting there in the tank and, you know, never, never to wash, eating a bunch of crappy food and see some dangerous things around you, both are equal when it terms being targeted. I think that completely changed, you know, and some people said, well, do you guys, you guys manipulate it? Cause there's a lot of it like within the military, within the uh, media world, there's a lot of people thought that we're, we're biasing towards the military when we're living with them and embedded with them. And I said, that's absolutely not true. You know, I was in first time I was embedded. The, there was only two little rules that there were out there. Uh, one is don't give, live what our location is, you know, for obvious reasons. And the other one, it says, if anybody gets badly, badly wounded or killed, don't report who they are until the family's notified. Those are the only rules. The rest of it was a fight. You know, we would try to gather and they would try to hide it and all of that kind of thing, which is part of the game. And, uh, but that was the only rule. And then of course, so we became friends after going through a situation like that. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a real band of brothers uh, in the military, and and that's for all aspects of it. If you go through something like that, you know, the not showering, the the long hours, the the constant repetitive patrols, and 
the situations you find yourself in. There's a guy in my book I talk about that I ran down through a firefight and picked him up and I pulled him out of a firefight because he tore his, his knee up, MCL, ACL, meniscus and everything like that. And, you know, it's not a guy that I wanted to go out for drinks with. Like I didn't, I didn't necessarily enjoy his company. Uh, we were not friends um, to say it mildly, but he was somebody that I served with. He was somebody in my unit. And when he went down, there wasn't a, a thought of like, oof, I don't really like that guy. <laughs> you know, it was like, I have to go get him. So, so I think that camaraderie comes, you know, like, you know, whether or not you guys trust each other at the beginning, at, at the end, you, you knew like, you know, how to, how to do the dance of, okay, I can shoot this or they're not going to want me to get that. And I want to respect that because I want to go out with them again and, and all that. So I make light of a, a lot of situations. So just like you, uh, my career blew up in 2012, but, uh, in 2007, you were injured pretty badly. Um, do you, do you mind talking about that and, and, uh, what happened that day and, and how it changed your path, if you will? Yeah, that one changed it in an instant. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. You're right. You know, you guys asked me if I ever thought about getting hit. I mean, so I never really saw it coming, but you know, I'm essentially I was out there. What was really my second in bed, you know, we went out with the first, I mean, with the, uh, with a with a third infant fourth infantry and so we were going to taji because this was the point where it was right after the state of the union that, that president bush was about to deliver and he's going to talk largely about how this war the power was going to be passed over from from us to the iraqi military and they wanted to show what's going on with, with these mitt operations you know where they're going village to village to try to get to know the, the locals of the towns and, and try to help them in this, you know, recovery mode after the war. And, and uh, so we wanted to go and see exactly what's happening. So we went out with a combined team of both U.S. and Iraqi uh, unit. And there were eight vehicles that were going to drive between village to village. We visited one. It was great. And then we got in again to go to a second one. This time I was me and my, my cameraman, Doug Vogt, and my sound man, Vinny Malhotra. And then we, we, uh, our sound guy and our producer were still inside the tank. And, uh, Doug and I stood up over the top to do some shooting. And the, the driver, the Iraqi driver said, you guys probably ought to get down now because this might be an IED area. And uh, of course, we we're about, to, we we're really about to go down and this thing blasted on the, on the left. Mm. And the power of those things are, as you know, extremely well, that they just uh, the speed of the of the sound first is faster than the rocks and the metal that it, that it shoots towards you. So the sound of it just knocked me out uh, complete, com- instantly. So I never felt the the rocks and the metal coming, but it followed behind that and went from the left side shattered my skull on the left and a bunch of the rocks and metal pierced all the way through the left part of my my neck one went all the way through to the other side didn't pierce through any uh, veins or arteries and just stopped one short of the artery almost went right through and they had to take it out two weeks later almost thinking if they pull it it may unplug it and, and bleed uh you know blinded in the upper right hand corner of both of my eyes from the blast it shattered my scapula in my back. If I didn't have uh, body protection on, I would dead for sure. If I didn't have a helmet on, I'd be dead for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
problem. And so the left the left part of my face was scat- shattered. I had to go back and rebuild a lot of that. And I went out instantly and then but I woke up after a one minute because I was just unconscious. And then I woke up for about 10 minutes and I looked at my my uh, producer down below and I said, are we still alive? And he, and he said, yeah, you're still alive. And that's the last thing I remember until I woke up 36 days later. But wow. I got a million stories I learned later on because people told me uh, really the the reality that they witnessed because they were awake and fine. And I got to say, these guys were amazing. We were when we were hit. All of the all of the the soldiers that were with us, both the U.S. and the Iraqis, jumped out of their vehicles after this IED explosion. And uh, right then, on all four sides of us, the insurgents who had detonated it opened fire at everybody who got out of the vehicles. So our guys all fired back. Um, we have no idea if they hit them. They ran. They died. We don't even know. And never really had the time or ability to go search to see if they could find them. Next at that time, there was a so we put me into a Bradley, me and Doug in a Bradley to take us about a mile down the road to be picked up by by volcano by helicopter in yeah. that volcano. And I heard a story later from a couple of the pilots that they were ordered by radio by the uh, by their boss to not land because there's still fears of IED and also gunfire was going on, but they ignored it, turned down the radio, ignored it, came down and landed and took us out. So, I mean, I, unless you guys have about 10 hours to talk, I'll tell you all the other stories. But No, no, no. That's fine. That's fine. And, you know, the thing is, um, those things are so so powerful. And when they go off, they just, it's instant. You know, there's nothing, you, you couldn't dodge, duck, dive, or dip or dodge uh, from that if you're a fan of Dodgeball the movie. But, you know, for me, my body armor on the side plate was ripped almost all the way through by a golf ball size of, of uh, metal. And if my body armor hadn't been in that spot, it would have cut my body right in half. So I understand that completely. Like weeks after my injury or months after, I still had shrapnel that would pop out of my face and my cheekbones, my where, you know, where my cheeks sat. My wife would like, oh, hey, you got this. And she'd pluck it out with tweezers, you know. <laughs> the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird thing to talk about, right? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very small uh, amount of people that have been through that. So, yeah. I mean, it, it took you... It took you some time to recover and relearn probably a lot of things and get back on your feet and uh, things like that. But after that, you returned to the to the news, you know, returned to the news desk. And and um, what was that feeling like, you know, to go through the recovery, to to be knocked down, but not knocked out? How did that feel? Well, can I ask you just real quick since you just mentioned it? Your, your, I, the ID of the blaster was underneath you, right? Uh, I sent my backpack down on it. So right next to me, but underneath. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because that was the uh, the road. It was like sand, or I mean, it was dirt. It wasn't on pavement. No, mine was dug into the uh, the side of a, a mound. Yeah, I was walking. I set my backpack down on my right side, and that's when my right arm, right leg, they were taken immediately. And my left side was uh, dangling, to say the least, of my left leg. Basically, they had to duct tape it to my thigh. As weird as that sounds, oh. and then my left arm was still kind of in use. Amazing, man! It's just like I think you're like one of the ten quad that actually survived i mean there was uh there's five of us total and two of them got double arm transplants so they're not really in my club anymore they quit on us <laughs> so there's only three but uh no there's there's five and you know the guy after me the fifth one he's a good friend of mine taylor morris huh. and you know we uh we've both been able to live some pretty normal lives i guess you could say huh. after the injury you know we're, we're both married both have he has a, a daughter and one on the way and my wife and i had a daughter when i was injured and she's 11 now, and my son is five. He was after the fact, and 
you know, it's it's something people say, I don't know how you do that or how if I could ever do that. But the truth is, you don't just don't find out because you're capable of a lot more than you think. And I think you had to find that out the hard way. And, and I know it wasn't easy on your wife. You know, for me, it's uh, it's more of the the burden that was going to be on my wife that that drove me to not only get better and push so hard in my recovery to like walk and feed myself and drive again and things like that. But it was, it was the thought of like, I'm going to be a burden. And I told her she should leave me because this isn't what I would choose for her. And, um, I had my doubts about what kind of life I would live, you know, going forward after my injuries. And, you know, luckily she was like, Nope, that's not how this works. And we'll get through this together. The conversation continues in moments. The American Hero Show is brought to you by Foundations Investment Advisors, benefiting the Travis Mills Foundation. You've worked your entire life, and now is the time to plan for the unknown. Just like what happened to Travis, you never know what life might throw at you, and things can change quickly. Even if you have a plan, sometimes things happen that you can't plan for. Foundations Investment Advisors helps pre-retirees and retirees manage risks in the new normal economy. As a fiduciary, Foundations does not charge commissions and works with independent advisors nationwide. To request your complimentary, customized financial plan, go to AmericanHeroShow.com. And now the conversation continues with Travis and Tim. Like you, I started a nonprofit too, the Travis Mills Foundation. But can you tell us about your nonprofit, why you started it, and and, and maybe you know what what caused you to to want to create it? Yeah, you know that's that, that that exact topic and and the one you just asked me about getting back and somehow to report again was really for the you know at at the same time and I think for for many of the the same reason is that you know on the we're in the in Bethesda Naval you know once we once I was hit went off to Balad where they rebuilt my my whole health it removed my left part of my my skull so the brain could breathe and and then they fixed my entire rest of my body or tried to, and then off to a long stool in Germany and then back to Bethesda Naval. And this is pretty freaking amazing. It's like 72 hours after that blast where you look back in Vietnam is something like 37 days to get people out that are wounded mm-hmm. back to hospitals in the U S. I mean, just the, the technology is amazing to stabilize the vehicle, the, the planes and the helicopters. But anyway, so I, you know, when I, when I got back to, there I was out for 36 days, and and there I was on the third floor of the Bethesda Naval. And there's a lot of this. A lot of, obviously, it's you know Navy. It's uh, there's a lot of Marines that were badly wounded. The other ones on that third floor. And so my, you know, my brothers, uh, my three brothers would come, and my my parents actually both they were both still alive then, and and then of course my 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 wife. Uh, the kids were not allowed to come in because what it would look like to them. Mm-hmm. And so they're on the third floor and, you know, we had no idea. They didn't know if I was going to live or not, but they, uh, they, they saw all of these other Marines that were on the same place. And sometimes it makes me cry that, you know, a lot of them were still out, um, unconscious like me and other ones were you know, badly wounded. There was amputees. Most of the, most of the ones that were burnt were down in, in, in Texas, you know. But there was this was like the center of the brain injury, you know, the ones are badly imp- impacted by it. And they came in, my brother and my wife and my two brothers said, you know, listen, is there any way when you leave this place, if, you know, this is actually after I woke up and they realized I was still alive and I'm wandering, able to, you know, get around the, the floor. And uh, they said, you know, if 
when you come back, you got you've got us. You've still got your job at ABC. You've got some stability. You're also at the time I was 45 years old compared to like 22. You know, they were mm-hmm. wounded in the Marines, and, and they thought you know there's going to be the biggest problem when they when all all the people go back to their 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 towns and their cities is they may not have exactly the same kind of support once they leave and they will, you know, the VA was amazing, but certainly not prepared for these kinds of wounds. And we're worried about there's going to need need to find a way for the people of our country to fill that gap between what the family can do, what the friends can do and what the government can do. And so they thought, well, let's just, let's start a, a simple little foundation we can just raise some money and like some there's like one family told her they they had to get out of their unit out of their uh of their base and move somewhere they didn't have a a mattress you know for the new place they needed so can you get someone to help that or you know people needed to get a vehicle to get from one place to another can we get somebody to donate to get a car whatever these relatively simple ones uh at the time and started a foundation and we didn't think it was going to last more than a year or something, you know, when this thing was right at the peak of the war. Mm-hmm. But of course, it didn't end and it didn't stop. In fact, it kept getting worse. And so it's, it's continued ever since. Did you think the, the foundation was going to be, have as big an impact? Obviously, you just said it, you thought it was only going to last a you know a short while. But did you think that your foundation was going to have as big an impact as it does now? No, I think no. We didn't. We didn't even think it was going to survive. Yeah. You know, it's interesting just to like to, you know, back. I think at that time there were something along the lines of 40, 45,000 organizations, charity groups that were trying to do something for the military because this was right at the peak peak of the you know two thousand six. Sure. Yeah. And we didn't think it was going to last all that long, um, and we knew there was going to be a challenge. So we but we had to raise some money, and that was you know, easier there then than it is now in some ways for in terms of the amount nationwide. And so somebody called after seeing the documentary that, that I did, which came out 13 months after I was hit because I was mm-hmm. pre- pretty much just the hospital the whole time. And then finally we were able to put together this documentary about of quick mention about what happened to me and my cameraman, but then largely what was happening in the country to try to deal with these huge numbers of wounds, severe wounds, where in previous wars, we, we would have been, you know, Travis, you and I would be dead. You know, we would not have survived at all in previous wars. Mm-hmm. So that opens up these other, other problems. So we try to ra- do some raise fundraising, you know, and, and it wasn't simple because we didn't really have much of a reputation yet or anything, but we had this one group that runs the, comedy festival in new york who saw the documentary and says listen every november we got all these comedians that come once you guys uh we can put together free everybody wants to donate their time to do it we can have like a show we said oh, okay that's cool uh that'd be great so we can send some sell some tickets and that's another friend of mine worked at sony and says listen i think we can get springsteen to do it too <laughs> i said oh wow that'd be awesome so then he volunteered his time so i mean that was one that kind of gave us a little bit of hope that we can at least raise some money uh, with the foundation. And we've done that same show since 2007, every single year. And, you know, Bruce Springsteen's done it, everything but one year of it. So we've been able to raise that. I don't, Travis, I don't know, but uh, you know, raising money is never easy, but at least I guess in some ways 
we got incredible feedback from people and I think everybody involved in it, and especially me and my wife and my brother. It was the most satisfying thing I think we'd ever done in our lives. So we just wanted to keep it going. And we had a lot of demands to do so. So it's, it's been it's been pretty remarkable. We didn't think it would still be here. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, I I get that. My uh, my wife and I started our foundation to do care packages, five thousand dollar donation from Kelsey and I. And now looking back, we bring in eight families per week at this retreat we built, and wow, giving back to these families that have been through physical injuries. We've expanded with a post traumatic stress program, and I've been very conscious of you know we're going to use the Army's method of uh, crawl, walk, run, so we'll not get too big for ourselves, and we'll make sure that we can always cover you know our costs and expenses and never get too big too fast and implode so so i commend you and, and your wife and your brother on on doing that and you're right it does feel good i mean i don't i don't take a dime and um it's just about giving back and it feels good to watch these families come together that like you said don't have maybe the support system they had at walter reed out balboa at bamsey and be able to reconnect and to see that there's other families out there like them and have other kids that are like oh my gosh there's another dad or mom like my dad or mom and that's why we do it. So you guys are here. So, I mean, there's so many that now listen, what, the 46,000 or 545,000, I said about the number of organizations back then, you know, there's maybe a thousand left or something, you know, not even well, that. So you guys yeah. clearly, you're the survivors because you're the best, you know, so. Well, I just cheated. I uh, I took Gary Sinise's philosophy of building houses for guys like me. And then I thought, well, let's bring those people out of their homes and bring them back together. So I really... I just kind of stole all the people from Gary Sneeze, Tunnel of Towers, and Caring Charitable Foundation that I knew. But no, it's it's great. We supply that respite and relaxation. But okay, so you know, in in our, our wrap up, I know your time's very valuable and everything. You know, you've been you've been part of some amazing things in history you've covered. You've got some really prestigious awards. I mean, six Emmys. Um, you know, what the DuPont Award and George Foster Peabody and or I mean sorry, Alfred A. Alfred I. DuPont Award. Sorry, reading's not my first thing. I missed the science at bomb right here. You know, what idiot. But, uh, I mean, out of all the awards and the Emmys and the, and the accolades, what, do you, what what are you most proud of, do you think? Well, I think I talked to you already. The one about doing this uh, you know, foundation to help others that are, you know, kind of we're in the, we got this, you know, tight group, those that have been wounded in the wars, you know. And yeah, it's, it's funny, right? That's the most sad. But in terms of stories, you know, that I've done, that kind of work mm-hmm. and awards that we got. I mean, obviously, I think I'm still quite proud of what we did a year after I was hit, you know, about the foundation, because I really was kind of a wake up. I think that people realized that we're not prepared to do what's need to be done to help the military, you know, that were wounded Mm -hmm. or even those handful of us in the military that were there, too, and wounded or killed. So I think that was incredibly satisfying. You know, I, I'm doing almost all, almost all just long form stuff now, just documentary work and or long form on everything from, you know, Nightline to to Hulu to Nat Geo, uh, where we do those kinds of stories. One of them that we, we did, I actually called Road Trip. This is where I did it with my son. I love this. This is great. I'm glad, oh, you, you, I'm glad you mentioned yeah. this. Uh, yeah, yeah, this yeah, is awesome. So that was, I mean, how much that's incredibly satisfying because, you know, all these all these countries that I've been reporting on all those for years, well before I was wounded, is, uh, you know, countries, well, actually, this is with all me- media these days, is that everything's like sad, depressing stories. So I'd go into yeah. a story about about how the weather is, you know, killing people or, you know, there was a war that everybody died or 
there's starvation here. So all these countries that I report on, I wanted to go and show my son that these countries actually have amazing people in amazing places. You know, so we went to like you know, you know Colombia and then Ethiopia and Lebanon and Pakistan and Papua New Guinea. And ironically, the last one that I went my my daughter enjoying that one was was Ukraine. Oh wow! Because <laughs> that was nothing but depressing. So now it's back to depressing again. But it, back then, just to be able to chance to go that so that was incredibly satisfying. And I just finished a uh, a five uh, uh, episode series on fentanyl. I don't know if you guys know that story, but fentanyl is a is mm. a is a drug. Well, I know what fentanyl is. Yeah, I didn't know you did a five part series on it. Yeah, yeah sadly everybody does. But I don't know if you saw it or not. But there was here's the, here's the irony, and this is up you know on the topic we're talking about is I realized this about a year and a half ago because I've um. I've, I've done stories on this um, before, and there was one medic who I, I found out that he was the one that was in Baghdad, a guy named David Williamson, and he was the guy that was a medic in Bethesda Hospital when everyone thought I was going to die, but I lived. But he's the guy that actually injected me with fentanyl because fentanyl is an amazing drug when it's used in hospitals and doctors to control the amounts. It's a great painkiller. And he injected flash forward and he through another surgery he had, he had to take oxy as a painkiller. Uh, and then that ultimately gave him an addiction tie in heroin added to it, became a heroin addict. Um, and then like so many others that have, have died or become addicted to as well to fentanyl is what fentanyl accidentally, not accidentally, intentionally by the dealers ended up in, in the heroin he took. And he also was nearly killed by fentanyl. The guy who used fentanyl to help save my life Jeez. 10 years before. So that was also in that series too. And it was, that was one of the most satisfying thing too, because now he is clean mm -hmm. and along with his amazing wife. They live down in the Austin area in Texas. And, uh, but what, what about that? You know, it's like, you know, this stuff's impacted our, our lives, you know, and we have so many friends that have gone through something similar and, you know, that, that too. So I think those stories were the ones that I thought at least were, were a wake up to people, um, a message that I wanted to give them and it's longer form. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. Bob, I, your time is very valuable. I mean, Tim and I just can't thank you enough for being part of the American Hero Show. You are truly, you know, a hero. And I'm thankful for the work that you and your wife are doing. And You guys are. And uh, hopefully I get to cross paths with you in person sometime. Um, Tim, I would love that, man. Where do, you, where, yeah. do you, where do you guys live, by the way? Manchester, Maine. I live up in Maine. So about wow. right outside of Not Augusta. Not that far. Wow. Yep. I got to go to Atlantic City, actually, uh, coming up here in a little bit. So I'll be driving right through New York. Wait, are you doing some speeches and things like that? Uh, yeah, that's my primary job now. I do about 50 a year. And then I, I own a restaurant. I just opened up in a few other businesses. So I keep myself as busy as possible. Good for you. Yeah. But do you ever get up this way, Bob? Uh, Have you been to the foundation? My my daughter went to BC, so I'd go as far up as uh, Boston. I don't really get much for, far north of that. Well, if you go to Portland, I'm only an hour from there, and Tim lives in Portland. So we'll take you out to nice seafood because uh, I don't like it. So you don't got to worry about me eating anything lobster related. <laughs> now, shrimp I can do. 
If you want fish, everybody kept asking me yesterday night at my restaurant. Like they're like, oh my gosh, like what's in the fish tacos? I'm like, fish. What kind of fish? I'm like, kind that's in the water. They're like, yeah, but, but what kind? I'm like, I don't know. I don't eat it. Why would I care? But it's delicious. But uh, all right, hey, thanks so much for your time. We'll let you get back to your day, and, and really appreciate you talking with us today, sir. Uh, you guys are the best. Thanks so much for having me on, man. I love it. Uh, you're a winner. Love you guys. Thanks so much. I'll tell you what, Tim. Oh my goodness, I, what a what a crazy story. Can you imagine being a correspondent, just like embedded, thinking like I'm just going to get pictures and videos and stories, do everything I can to stay out of the way, but help you know paint the picture for everybody back home, and then you know, a bomb goes off. And and I mean, like, not that I expected to have a bomb go off on me, but like I knew as part of the risk, you know, of my job that it could happen. Right. And I'm not sure if you have that same that same thought process you know, going over as a civilian reporter, but, uh, but boy, Bob's been through the ringer. I'm sure he wishes it didn't happen, but he's come out the other side, just fighting. He's a fighter. I mean, not just a fighter, but he, I mean, I think he had to, I watched some videos of him during his recovery after he got hit and, you know, his kids were teaching him new words and he was, you Mm -hmm. know, going through it with a bunch of, with positivity. But if you looked at him and when you look at him, the doctors did an amazing job. Yeah, they did. They definitely did. It's amazing. Um, you can't. You, you can barely tell. And that's why he gets to be on TV still. You right. know. But yeah. uh, you know, you can see him light right up out of all the accolades and all the awards. And you know, and I and I get that. We always strive to have an award or to be noticed for something, maybe or, or you know something that you want. Like like Purple Hearts aren't something that you want to earn, but people get them. Type deal. It seemed like out of all the awards and all the stuff, he was most proud of the foundation as well as. Being able to take his kid, yeah. you know, or both kids actually for the last episode, like he said, on his show on Disney Plus. And and that's I think that's the incredible part, right? Like when you have something that's so traumatic happen, you realize what's important in life. Yeah. And um, you know, I think we learned that over COVID. What's most important was our families and things like that as well. But but now it's about like what stories can I tell that I'm passionate about? And um he does a great job, you know, and and kudos to him and his wife for keeping keeping, you know, it together and being so strong. It would really, it, it, we, we kind of jested and said, Hey, do you ever get to Maine? But it would be great if he came up here and did, did a little something on the uh, Travis Mills Foundation. Cause I think he, you know, having been in a similar situation as a lot of the guys that come up or families that come up to your uh, foundation, you get something out of it. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And, and, and the, the invite wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't insincere. It was, it was fully sincere, full huh? sincerity Is in it? that one, Tim. Yeah. But for all of our people listening out there, hey, thanks so much for tuning in. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. You can find more episodes at AmericanHeroShow.com. If you don't listen, my mom will call you. Sherry Mills is ruthless if you make her little boy upset, and that's that's me. And um, you can find out more information on me at TravisMillsFoundation.org. I'm the guy with no arms, no legs in the pictures, in case you couldn't sort through and figure out which one I was. Tim, what do you got? AmericanHeroShow.com. Nailed it, Tim. Thanks. For more on how you can help our country's heroes, go to AmericanHeroShow.com.